Good evening. My name is Sam. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad that you've joined us for our Monday Thursday service this evening. Uh, if you've never come to this service before, if this is even the first time you're hearing the words Monday Thursday, I want to take a moment to explain what we're doing here tonight. Tonight, Christians around the world begin to retrace the story of Jesus' betrayal on Monday Thursday, his torture and execution on Good Friday, the sorrow of his disciples on Holy Saturday. And over these three days, we're preparing our hearts for the great day of resurrection on Easter Sunday. So tonight, whether you realize it or not, you're here to begin a journey that leads first to a cross. That's why we're gathered tonight, to begin to walk the road to the cross. Now, our gospel reading from John chapter 13 shows us three things about the road that we're embarking on. And I want to spend a few minutes tonight reflecting on uh, these three points as we begin this road together. First, the road to the cross is a war path. Jesus went to the cross as an act of war for the human heart. That as Jesus approached his execution, he was advancing into enemy territory. Now, we may not be accustomed to thinking of Jesus as a warrior, and there's good biblical reason we might hesitate to do so. You don't picture a war path when you hear the prophet Isaiah describe Jesus as a lamb being led to the slaughter. And yet, if we turn to the end of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, what are we told about this very same lamb of God? Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Jesus, the, the lamb who was slain, is the lion of Judah, even and especially en route to the cross. The Bible tells this story of a war for the human heart. Already in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, we're told that this war will be decided when the offspring promised to Eve crushes the head of the serpent and is, in turn, fatally wounded. To Eve is promised this Savior who will die to redeem humanity and through redeemed humanity who will renew all creation. And that cosmic rescue plan begins with the human heart. Now remember, this war is a spiritual war. Francis Schaeffer, the great 20th century apologist, is rightly famous for going all over the world and spreading this sophisticated uh, form of Christian apologetics at top-tier universities around the West. But what many people don't realize is that every time, every time Schaeffer spoke to one of these erudite, lettered university audiences, he made a point to bring up the subject of angels. Why? Because you see, Christianity is more than a rational perspective on the world, though it is certainly not less than that. Christianity widens our lens on reality. 
Watch Peter Jackson's World War I documentary, They Shall Not Grow Old. And here's what you're going to notice. For 30 minutes, what you're watching is a small cube in the middle of your screen of black and white footage with no sound. It's just sort of uh, music from the 1910s and uh, uh, narration from these now elderly soldiers. But 30 minutes in, the perspective shifts. The image, that little box of black and white footage, expands to fill the screen. The black and white becomes color. The footage becomes audible. You hear voices, spoons, clanking in the trenches, engines humming. The lens, you see, is widening. And we're suddenly able to perceive reality in a way that's fuller, more real, more substantial than it was before. This is what John is doing in this chapter of the Bible. Picture a dark stage at a pivotal moment in one of Shakespeare's great dramas. The last act, the former act, is done. The stage is bare. No one can be seen or heard. And the audience, we're just waiting in suspense for the hero to emerge from the wings. So Jesus emerges. John chapter 13, verse 1. The hero of the story, and every eye is glued to him. But suddenly, another character emerges. Judas, the disciple, the traitor. So here on stage are the hero and the villain, right? Well, yes, but again, we're only seeing that little square of black and white footage. And Christianity, what John is doing here in the 13th chapter of his gospel, he's widening the lens. He's showing us another sphere of action behind what we can see going on. An invisible reality pressing in on the real world. A spiritual reality not less real than the physical world, but more real. A reality, as C.S. Lewis says in The Great Divorce, so much solider than things in our country that men are ghosts by comparison. We only see Jesus and Judas, but you see, in Judas, a spiritual force is working. Verse 2. The devil had already put it into Judas' heart to betray Jesus. So we have Judas, but we also have this spiritual enemy who cuts through resistance like a hot knife in butter. We see Judas, but working in Judas is something more. But here's where things get interesting. Because in Jesus too. An invisible spiritual reality is working. Verse 3. Jesus knew that his father had given all things into his hands. He had come from God and was going back to God. You see, if in Judas we have the power of Satan, in Jesus we have the power of the father. We may just see these two men on stage. But in reality, we are witnessing the collision of hell's malice and heaven's mercy. Now understand something about this collision. The sides in this war, they're not equal. The outcome does not hang in the balance. Despite all the horrors that we're going to recall over the next three days, heaven's champion will claim the victory. 
John illustrates this vividly. And he does it through this contrast, but a contrast not between the hero and the villain on the stage, Jesus and Judas. No. A contrast between Jesus and Satan. In verse 2, John tells us that Satan, I want you to underline this word in your mind, puts the desire to betray Jesus into Judas' heart. John describes Satan's action with this particular word, balain in the Greek. And it's no accident that John uses the word again in verse 5, only in a, in a stretched metaphorical way, in a way that makes us wonder, what's John doing here? Verse 5, then Jesus poured, the word is balain, poured water into the basin. The repetition gets lost in our English translations, but the word pour is the same as the word used to describe Satan's insinuation of betrayal in verse 2. What's the point? The point, quite simply, is that in Jesus, we don't have a rabbi getting backstabbed by a weaselly disciple. We're not dealing with a mere man subject like Judas is to spiritual realities outside of him. No, in Jesus, we see the spiritual reality of heaven in the flesh. In this spiritual war, Satan puts temptations in our hearts, but Jesus pours into us something very different. What is it that Jesus is signifying here? What is it that Jesus pours out? You don't have to flip back with me, but if you would like, flip back to John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. And I'll read this for us. Here's Jesus at the Feast of Booths. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about, about what? About the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were yet to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. You see, in the battle for our hearts, heaven and hell, they work with different artillery. Hell with temptation, Jesus, by the Spirit. Even the ways in which these artilleries are deployed are different. Satan induces betrayal through a chain of faithlessness, from Judas to the Sanhedrin, from the Sanhedrin to Pilate, from Pilate to the executioners. But Jesus, gift of the Spirit, flows from the chain of his faithfulness, from his sufferings to his death from his death to his resurrection, from his resurrection to his ascension into heaven, where he pours out the gift of the Spirit. You see, we are witnessing the collision of heaven and hell. And in this collision, Jesus is not a casualty. He is the divine warrior, God in the flesh, establishing the inbreaking reign of God by the power of the Spirit. He is the offspring promised to Eve, come to crush the serpent's head and in turn to be mortally wounded. Now, I said I had three points. That was the first. The last two are shorter. 
On the road to Golgotha, Jesus is waging war for the human heart. But for whom and to what end? Let's tackle each of those last two points in turn. Okay, here's the second point. Jesus waged war, but not just for some hearts, for every human heart. In this war, no one, no heart is scorched earth. It doesn't matter what you've done or failed to do. For the same reason that God is not impressed by your achievements, He is not surprised by your failures. The gift of forgiveness is extended to all without exception, and that includes Judas. Now we're teetering on the brink of a deep mystery here. Peter, of course, is also going to betray Jesus. Why does Peter not fall into the same fate? Is it because Peter's a a little bit better, a little bit more righteous, a little bit more sanctified than Judas? No. The ground of Peter's repentance was solely grace. The only thing that differentiated Peter from Judas was God's mercy. Peter's heart was a stream of water in the hand of the Lord who turns it wherever he will. Now, while we're standing on the brink of divine mystery, we have to say at the same time, the way to life genuinely lies open before Judas. Notice that Judas is still in the room when Jesus washes his disciples' feet. The sign of divine love, it extends to Judas too. He's present when the one who wraps himself in light as with a garment clothes himself in a servant's towel. Judas is present when the one who created the waters and made our feet of clay stoops down to wash the disciples' muddy feet. The way of life which Peter accepted, it was open to Judas. And it's offered to you. Imagine that the entire city of Harrisonburg becomes infected. Every household, every person with COVID-19. And imagine that very soon... A vaccine is invented, and the CDC sends a representative to our city and announces publicly that this medicine is is offered freely to all, and that all who partake of it will be cured. The offer of salvation, it's like this. The invitation is open to everyone who will turn and trust in Jesus. Many refuse the cure, but not because the cure has been refused to them. Now, for some of you, doubt is a real and persistent struggle. And we might be standing on the brink of the mystery of God's grace. And and you peer over the edge and you don't see the everlasting arms of a loving father. 
you see a, a terrifying abyss. For some of you, doubt is very real. And you may be asking, how do I know that I'm Peter and not Judas? Can I encourage you to ask a different question? The real question is, are you attracted to the Jesus you see here? This servant king, do you want him? I'm not even, I'm not even asking if you believe in him. I'm asking, do you want him? Do you want to know him? Do you want to know his love? Do you want this cure for the terminal illness in the human heart? Do you want this Jesus? If you're answering yes to this question for the first time in your life, here's what I want you to do. As soon as this service is done, I want you to get on the phone with a Christian that you know. And I want to encourage you to tell them not that you believe this, but that for the first time, you want to believe this. Now, if you're a Christian and a friend reaches out to you to say this, how might you respond? I'd encourage you to share the third and final point of this sermon. On the road to the cross, Jesus waged war for every human heart. Why? Here's the third point. To the end that all humanity might share in his victory over sin and death. To the end that all humanity might be united with him and know the love and intimacy that Jesus enjoys with the Father. So if you get a call from a friend who says, hey, for the first time, I want to believe this, Encourage your friend not to explore the claims of Christianity from a distance, but to dig into those questions in the midst of the church where Christianity isn't just theory. It's the presence of life and death as Christians live a transformed life in the midst of a dying world. Remind your friend that Christianity offers more than just a new outlook on life. It offers a transformed way of living, a way of life that flows from intimacy and communion with the one who made us. You have to drive this point home to your friend, lest they misunderstand what Jesus is saying in verse 15 about giving us an example to follow. Your friend needs to understand the gospel is not moralism. It's not in imitating Jesus that we come to be united to him. But in being united to him that we come to imitate him. It's not in imitating Jesus that we come to be loved by him. It's in being loved by him that we come to imitate him. Transformation doesn't come by imitation alone. It comes by union with Christ, by knowing and being filled with the love of Jesus Notice in verse 8, union and the work of the Spirit are tied together. If I do not wash you with that washing I was talking to you about in chapter 7 at the Feast of Booths, you have no share with me. If I do not work in you by my Spirit, you cannot be united with me. But for everyone who comes to Jesus out of his heart, 
out of her heart will flow rivers of living water. That is the Holy Spirit, our consoler, our advocate, the paraclete, the one who cries in us, Abba, Father, who fills us with the knowledge of our belovedness, a deep security which transforms our hearts into wellsprings of transformed living. Christians don't mime Jesus. Don't invite your friends to a life of mere imitation. Our life flows from the life of Jesus. The Christian life isn't a pale imitation of Jesus' works. No, it's precisely because we insist we are united to Christ by grace alone. That difficult thing I said to you several minutes ago about Peter. It's precisely because of that that we don't blush when we talk about virtue. Grace doesn't bleach the Christian life. It saturates it. Grace doesn't destroy virtue. It amplifies it. The life I'm inviting you to share in and the life that I'm hoping you will invite your friends and family to share in, it's not a life of mere imitation. It's a life of union, of deep, overflowing intimacy where the life and love of Jesus overflow our hearts out into the world so that from Jesus' faithfulness flows our faithfulness. So that from Jesus' compassion flows our compassion. So that from Jesus' mercy flows our mercy. Not because we mimic him. But because by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are being united to the Son in his perfect intimacy with the Father. To this one God whose undivided work of redemption we herald over these next three days, be honor and glory, now and forever. Amen.